Now they said this was Christmas music, and I, I, Stefan, I, I talk about my opening song all the time, and I uh-huh. have to tell you, I looked up Thanksgiving music, and I realized there is no such thing. I guess it's Indian music would be Thanksgiving. <laughs> Guess. Like American little, Indian music. a little music. nightmare before Christmas. I could get that aspect to it. Which is kind of like pan holiday when it yeah. comes to that. But so. it's got like a Danny Elfman little <laughs> creepy vibe to it. Well, I'm, I'm happy. I have to explain it every time because I paid $29.99 for the rights to use it. <laughs> so I feel like I get my money's worth. We are here. The Brian Moreno Show. This is this is a very interesting episode. I... I I did two weeks ago the first mind and body episode with Amelia DiDomenico. She <laughs> totally broke me down and really opened my eyes to a lot of a uh, lot of things that probably were right in front of me that I already knew and understood. But it was a lot about intention. It made me realize, like, what was my intention in this show? Why? Why am I even here? Why did I set this room up? And I realized that. You know, my intention, and it may be just incrementally tiny, but my intention is to make the world just a little better. Maybe it's sometimes it's through jokes. uh, Sometimes it's through interesting conversation with interesting people who can bring perspective and light to topics that maybe we didn't we didn't know or understand before. Or maybe it's simply just opening our eyes to things that were right in front of us and whether it's the sports show, the news show, my mind and body show that we're about to get into, it's all just to try to add a little perspective to the world and make it maybe a tiny bit better. You know, sometimes I succeed, sometimes I don't, but this episode, God, I hope to succeed <laughs> in, in getting some perspective. To my right, I have Madison Lee, the wonderful Madison Lee, who was here for the last Mind and Body episode. Thank Hi. you for joining us Thank you for again, Madison. Me. Yes, um, that was a very wonderful episode last time. My mother thinks you're absolutely amazing. My and mother, ha- same, yeah. Yes, and has <laughs> wonderful perspective. Our mothers would get along about how much they like you. And then... <laughs> In the seat today, we have Dr. Stefan Richter. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Stefan. I, I have to say, I know, you know, I'm friendly, you know, on a very friendly basis with <laughs> quite a few doctors, okay? Mm-hmm. Most of them don't come with the, with the recommendations that you have when it comes to being interesting. I have to say, because most doctors, I have to tell you, I, you know, I find um, a little hard to talk to outside of their specific field. Now, I know very little about you, Mm -hmm. um, so let's start from the top. You are a pulmonologist? A pulmonary and critical care medicine. Pulmonary and critical, so your specialty is critical care? What would? I do almost all my work in critical care, and I have a PhD in health policy as well. PhD. Okay, now explain t- exactly what critical care is. So critical care is not what happens in the emergency department. That's the number one mistake I get. Um, critical care is essentially when somebody gets invent uh, taken to the intensive care unit. That's where I step in. So typically, care that can't be delivered in the rest of the hospital because there's something too specialized or requires too much attention. Um, yeah, somebody's on a ventilator. Somebody's on medications that need to be monitored every hour or something along those lines. People who are sort of very close to death, and we're just trying to pull them back. Now, God, that's intense. Now, 
uh, how long have you been, um, I guess, out of your residency? Yeah. So I graduated medical school in 2010. I finished my residency in 2013. I finished my fellowship in 2017, 2018, depending on how you spin it. Wow. So, Jesus, how many years of school? Counting undergrad? 16-ish. 16? Mm -hmm. Wow, years of school. Now, um, I guess this is my first question, because a lot of my doctor friends, this this comes out. Like, if they would have known... (laughs) <laughs> what they know the job is really like in medical school, they would have become a dentist or or what they wouldn't have pursued the field. They didn't now. Um, do you have your own your your own practice or? So I work as a private contractor in a couple of different hospitals around Los Angeles okay. um, with a contracting group that sort of sets up all the nuts and bolts for me. OK, you keep talking. I'm going to get your mic a little closer. Yeah, I was about to say, I feel like I'm cutting out a little. Okay, so um, in regards to all of that, I'm kind of interested. When you started going down that path, did you think, like, yeah, critical care all the way I want to do, like, the dark, heavy lifting stuff? <laughs> or were you thinking, like, I'm going to tap the little kids on the knee and make everyone happy? I don't think I've ever wanted to interact with children professionally. Okay, um, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, no, I actually went into med school because I wanted to be a neuroscientist. And I originally thought about getting a PhD in neuroscience, and I was told that the neurologists kept stealing all their patients, so I should go to med school and do that. Okay. I thought that I wanted to be a neurologist. I realized that neurology is endlessly fascinating, but being mm-hmm. a neurologist is not endlessly fascinating, at least Got not it. to me. And then I was sort of at loose ends. I was bouncing around between emergency medicine, internal medicine, something along those lines. Did my critical care rotation in my fourth year of med school and then realized I was like, now this is it. This okay. is what I want to do. Wait, wait. So, okay. So you were, at first you were chasing the patient, right? A little bit like it, like. You, you were chasing the business aspect. You're like, I want to be a busy doctor. No, I was, I wanted, I want to figure out the foundation of human consciousness and how visual perception works at a sort of neurologic level. So this is, now this, uh, we're getting into a little <laughs> earlier than I wanted to. Okay. The mind, I was yeah. trying to tap dance. Okay, yeah. Stefan. All right. I, uh, now. Okay, so consciousness and all that, we will get into that more in depth. I, I still want to see the, understand the genesis of how you got to where you are. So um, critical care is uh, quite a bit different mm-hmm. than where your initial interest lied. So what uh, made, you know, what caused that change then? Because that's a big shift. Yeah, so the subject matter of neurology is something that I really care about, sort of how we experience the world what that looks like, the way in which humans work, the way in which humans don't work. I think that stuff is fascinating. But I think the day-to-day practice of being a neurologist and actually dealing with the medical side of those issues does not really bring me joy in the same way. And so when I was looking around for what medical specialty I wanted to do, um, I landed on critical care because I had this feeling. I was like, oh, this is a specialty in medicine where I can apply some brain power to solving problems problems that I care about that matter to me in a way that I can look at it, I can see from here to, you know, the next couple weeks what's going to happen in this person's life and potentially how to make a difference. Um, And then also there's an aspect to critical care that is a little hard to explain, but essentially, like, I don't have a lot of conversations with my patients because most of them are intubated, that means on a ventilator, um, or are too sick to have their brains functioning normally. I have a lot of interaction with patients' families Mm -hmm. and helping patients' families make sense of a profoundly traumatic event 
something along those lines, I feel like that's where you can actually make a difference as a doctor. The rest of the medicine, it doesn't really seem like this from the outside, but a lot of what I do in the ICU is make sure that somebody doesn't die while their body repairs itself. Oh, well, okay. Let's unpack this a little. There's a lot. There's yeah. no, Okay, so... You, it, I think it's beautiful, the, the fact that you want to make a difference. Because so many doctors, um, you know, that's not necessarily their fundamental goal. You know, like making a, a tangible difference. Like when, you know, a like they can actually touch it and you can see it. So w at what point in time did you become numb to some of the death and despair that you're dealing with? Because, yes, you... There is a bright side to what you're doing, but in the same note, there's the exact opposite side, which is, it's very dark, and it's very, like, when I hear some of my doctor friends speak, like, I, the numbness that they speak with sometimes I find chilling. Mm -hmm. When did, were you always that way, or was there a time when you had to just realize you have to shut that off? Um, so there's an answer to this question that I gave used to give pretty routinely about a year ago, and I think my answer has changed. Um, but the answer that I gave about a year ago was essentially that the goal of medical training is to make your job boring. Um, if you were to walk in and you had a problem, let's say something exploded in your abdomen, and a surgeon walked in and was like, oh, shit, that's cool. Am I allowed to say shit? Say any? Okay. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Surgeon walks in and is like, ah, oh, shit, that's cool. I've never seen that before. I'm real jazzed about this. Like, that's not the surgeon you want <laughs> trying to save your life. Yeah. <laughs> and so the the part of the purpose of medical training is to let you be calm in these situations. And being calm in those situations involves a certain amount of familiarity. And with familiarity, you sort of can know what to expect. The novelty wears off. And so in that sense, that can kind of translate to numbness in a certain way. Oh, the more you do it, the less shocking it becomes, I, I suppose. But do you, at, at a certain point, do you f carry some of that emotion with you? Like, say, like a social worker, I feel like, would? or So up until recently, I would have said no. And I had a conversation, a very deep and long conversation with a close friend of mine in about February. And what she asked, we were on a hike, um, and we just sort of sat down, and she was just like, hey, if somebody dies in the hospital, does that matter? And I was like, well, of course it matters. There are people who care. But she's like, yeah, but to the staff, do they care? Does it matter? And I was just like, yes, and. Um, yes, it matters. It affects people. It affects people differently. If I see someone who is, you know, at the end of a relatively full life, 90-something years old, has a lot of caring family, and you can have a conversation with that person or a conversation with the patient's family, and you understand that that person has made peace with death, and they un they knew that this was coming. Maybe they've been in and out of the hospital a whole bunch, or maybe they just, you know, made the decision at some point. They're like, I'm ready to go. I'm done. Um, those deaths don't affect me particularly well. That, you know, my job there is essentially to help people at the end of life. It's like a reverse doula position. Um, there are people who come in, and I've had some cases that have really affected me, people who are approximately my age, and they come in and they just, you know, have a new cancer diagnosis, and suddenly they're in the ICU for the second, third time this year, having been completely he healthy before then. And that is very difficult. That that affects me very personally because I'm like, oh, that, uh, that could be me. And, you know, empathy is not solely based on how well you can see yourself or see something happening to you exclusively, but sort of on that, 
I would say continuum. There are some people who I identify with. I can see myself in that situation and like I really carry that with me. And there are some people who I feel like it's not some sort of cosmic injustice that this person is mm -hmm. dying, which is not a value judgment. It's just that they've made peace with it and they're okay with it. And that's a little bit easier to move through. Yes, I, that's, I would say the, um, the identification level on that, that's something I think we can all relate to. When you see someone in pain, yes, you can empathize for them, you can sympathize for them, but when you really identify with that pain, you almost take it on yourself. In a, and, you know, even a subconscious way, mm -hmm. even a very subconscious way. Now, now well... When what part at what year in school did you move from neuroscience to uh, pulmonology and critical care? What when did that happen? How, what third fourth ish year of med school? Okay, so and where did you go to school? University of Michigan. Okay, oh. wonderful. I was a Hoosier. Oh, Wolverines I'm sorry. now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes, yes. Wolverines. I was a who? Yes, yeah. yes. We actually beat them in football last time. It never happened when I was oh, there. Wow. <laughs> yeah, no, Michigan football is never something that I really identified with, but. I got the impression that the the heydays of Michigan football were slightly before I was there. Oh yes, absolutely. Now, before we get too too into the weeds on some of my questions, when you speak to family with that hair, with the be it's beautiful. The colors are beautiful. Does that help or hurt you you sometimes? So I work in downtown Los Angeles and I work in Compton. Um, okay, and I've had maybe two or three incidents that I can remember in the last two years since my hair has looked like this that anybody said anything besides just positive regard for it. Oh, I, yes, I think it's absolutely beautiful, and I'm so happy the background matches. You look, oh, oh like, like, like it was yeah. all Amazing. intended to be. Oh, so that's very interesting. Now, okay, this is this is really what I, I wanted to get in with you, I suppose, a little later, but... We're 15 minutes in and I'm dying <laughs> to ask. Okay, so your your understanding and your curiosity of the conscious, you know, the conscious brain is, you know, I'm sure it's um, it's much deeper than mine, but I can assure you it's something that I have dedicated a lot of time and um, a lot of time and energy <laughs> to for a lot of different reasons. I... Um, I guess my first question for you is, as a man of science, what are some of the more esoteric kind of unseen things that you may believe in or may, may, may give you pause? Mm. And take your time on this because this is, you know, these are things that uh, when I question when I question people that I highly regard their brain, I, I want to know the things that make them not only curious that um, that cause them to wonder about things that maybe are unseen or not easily understood. And consciousness is obviously one of those because look, the other day, one of my friends made a comment to me. He's like, you talk about your body like it's a car. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it is. It's simply the vessel for my consciousness. <laughs> That's all it is. Mm, that's a remarkably dualistic way of looking at things, but well, well. it is yeah. because we do, we have no idea how long the consciousness really lasts, and so I guess um, before you really answer that question about some of the some of the unseen things, when have you ever actually felt death, like the energy pass through, exit a body? Have you, or or is it simply 
the the electrical signals just stop firing. I, I what have I felt death? I've seen a lot of people die. Sure. Yeah. Um You asked him the heaviest question. I feel like I've ever heard you. <laughs> have I felt that? I don't I don't think that I have felt that as anything besides an observable series of events. It hasn't felt like I felt the emotional weight of that happen. Sure. But I felt that through the other people in the room, not necessarily like I don't feel like I, you know, like we've lost him, doctor. I don't feel like, you know, there was some sort of like release or like spine tingling thing that happened during that moment. Mm, that's interesting because yes, I I wasn't hoping for a spine tingling moment, but I was hoping for something that maybe made you question the idea of a soul or a consciousness passing through the vessel that I so mm -hmm. eloquently <laughs> your car that's a, yes, that's a my metaphor car. I use all the time yeah. your car needs a tune-up sir <laughs> yeah do you know about Russell's teapot uh, it, it, it refresh my memory. Uh, I, it, this philosopher, essentially, it was he was talking about the various arguments for God, and one of the things that he touched on was like, hey, if there's a teapot that's in orbit halfway between the Earth and the moon, we don't know what to do with that information. If you just postulated that that existed, that's, that's what's called a non-falsifiable proposition. You essentially have something that we don't have any data about, and it's hard to make any conclusions or even argue against that. And that is a lot of what news is today. Sure. Yes. Okay. That is yeah. that is exactly the term that has been coined, well, in my mind at least, to describe a lot of the presumption that is put out in the news. I mean, right it depends now. on how far you are into like the wackosphere, but um, you know, you yeah. can tell. I've I've dabbled. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what we're here to do? We're I've dabbled dabble. in the dark arts. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I, I would put this a step beyond that because between the Earth and the Moon, we actually have a pretty good map of that. But if you were to tell me that there was a teapot, you know, orbiting Alpha Centauri or something like that, you know, somewhere in Orion's belt or something, um, we don't have any way of detecting that. And so it becomes sort of a moot point in the same way that, you know, does a soul exist separately from the body? I don't think there's a good way of verifying that with the technology that we currently have. And so trying to figure that out to me is sort of the same question as asking well what if there's a god who doesn't want to be found what if god just says hey you know i created the universe i'm all powerful and part of my power is that i can completely cloak myself from human ex you know human perception like what do i do with that postulate i just say well yeah maybe maybe there's a god who can't be found but that doesn't that can't have any bearing on my life because I can't figure out whether or not it's true. And that's why I don't like to dabble in um, presumption like gods of any, because people much smarter than me have tried to say that this God is the one and only. And I, I, yeah. I don't like to dabble in that. That is for each own consciousness to choose. I think. Yeah. I think, I think that's fine. I, d I don't begrudge anybody's the re you know, relationship with how they think the world works or the model of how the world works that makes sense to them. There's a, there's a fun statistical aphorism, which is that all models are wrong. Some models are useful. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you, if your model of how the universe is put together involves a human consciousness, 
And that helps you, and that helps you move, sorry, human consciousness that exists separate from the body, which we, I guess, we can call yes. a soul. Yeah. If you, if your model of how the universe works involves that concept, and that's useful to you, and that helps you move through the world and helps you get the sort of interactions you want to out of the people in your life, I don't think, I don't begrudge that to anybody. It just isn't how I see things. Sure. And I, I, I can agree um, 100% on that, and I think to elaborate a little more, because anything, any model like that, you're basing it a lot on perception. And perception is based on so many things, including experience, um, sometimes ability, it is. you know, me mental capacity, mm -hmm. um, uh, a, a drive to, uh, to want to see other things. Mm -hmm. Because I, as I talk all the time, a lot of this world is about uh, affirmation, not information. Mm -hmm. And yeah. our perception a lot of times is based on simply uh, affirmation. Mm -hmm. Totally. Okay, so that's fascinating. Now, I kind of want to ask. Go, please. Um, so it's interesting, like, on this topic, right? Like, the medicine that you're practicing or that you're in, you, I'm assuming you interact with, like, this kind of situation more than, like, any other field, right? Because I'm assuming people who are so close to end of life or that are, you know, you know fighting for their life and then you're interacting with their families, are you, fe do you, are you fielding questions like this, like, people are they coming to you from beyond like a medical point like asking you like if they're going to make it or if there's like signs of life like how do you kind of quantify and relate or answer that question if someone wants to know their person in real life who may have just passed or is barely hanging on like what is that like for you um i'm so sorry can you rephrase that a little bit yeah yeah so like are you th the questions that Brian's are asking, right? Oh, about the human consciousness, the soul, yeah. things along those lines. Do you get those I get, questions? I get remarkably few questions about that. Okay. Remarkably few. Really? Surprise, yeah. Right? And, and part of it is that I think people don't expect me to want to engage on those. And part of it is also, it's not, it's not really the level on which people are, I don't, I think level's the right word. It's not really the the mode through which people are trying to, to figure it out. You know, they, they want answers from me about what do we expect, what's going to happen to this person's body, because that's okay. what, you know, what I've studied. And I get questions about, like, hey, what's this person's level of consciousness? Can they hear me? Do they know I'm here? That's a question okay. that I get a lot. Um, and we don't exactly know the answer to that. But in terms of, like, what's going to happen to this person's, you know, immortal soul after they die, I think a lot of people have the sense that that's not something they ask doctors. And I'm not totally sure why. And I think it might be because it doesn't really affect how I treat people. Okay. Yeah. Treat them medically. Sure. Yeah. 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 So, so, so on that same note, mm -hmm. though, uh, when, it, when experiencing, um, I suppose, someone's family in that moment, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the situations, the critical care, like are these accidents or are these people that have slowly declined? Are these families like they are fully aware that the per the patient at the time has been degrading for months, maybe years? I or or are you dealing with things that are 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 well this this year it's a lot more is okay yeah, uh, and that's yeah. kind of what you know like things uh, with COVID things you know people. Um, People have, I, I guess, uh, deteriorated much quicker than much more quickly. Yeah, the t the typical ICU patient in 2019 was probably somebody in their 60s or 70s who had a number of chronic medical issues, okay. and it's usually 
The one thing that really surprised me about medicine in general when I got into residency is I was just like, oh, we have 50 patients at this hospital who we'll see once a month. They're just inpatient all the time. They have a number of chronic illnesses. They're in and out. Um, there are people who everybody knows their names. Everybody knows their entire medical history. And it's just, you know, when that person shows up, we're like, hey, Mr. Smith, so-and-so, like, how is your diabetes? How is your kidney failure? How is things like that? And so there's a lot of, like, longitudinal care that really happens in in the inpatient setting. And that's a whole separate issue. Um, but in the ICU, we also have a lot of repeat customers. And some of them are because their diabetes is so out of control that they are close to death because of high blood sugars once a month. Um, and some of that is because there are people who are really in the dying process. The dying process just takes two years because we keep putting them on a ventilator and then taking them off and then they're better and then they're worse and things along those lines. So there's a lot of longitudinal care. But even within that context, oh, yeah, there are people who the family is like, yes, we are very aware that this person is close to death. We're not ready for it yet. There are a lot of people who are like, oh, yeah, this person's had cancer three times. You know, they've been in remission and I think they're going to live forever. Right. And that's <laughs> difficult that yeah. is not uh that's not a family situation that i find it easy to connect with okay now um as for covid since uh the hospitals that you work at seemed um i i don't know i'm making a guess that some of the demographics you work with are less um you know, majority minority is what i would say okay yeah. so get a lot of use out of my medical Spanish. so have you uh, what are your First thoughts on Corona, right? What comes, what would you want to get out there? What are your thoughts? Because um, I had it in March and I was sick as shit. I'm A negative. Mm -hmm. I donate blood because it's such a rare blood type. At that time, I couldn't even get a test. Nobody wanted to see me. You know, I had an oxygen meter was brought to me. Like I was down to 94%. Mm -hmm. And I could, I could feel my lungs in my back. Never felt that before. Yeah. Coronavirus is not the weather. That's the big thing that I would say. You can't fuck with the weather. You can fuck with coronavirus in the same way that, like, we can't change weather patterns. We can change what's going on. And I feel like a lot of people, especially in this country, have looked at this and just been like, oh, well, I guess COVID cases are going up. That sucks. And not really taking it personally that the things that we do collectively really matter quite a bit individually not so much but it's like voting you have to do it because if nobody does it we all get screwed and one of the things that's been consistently disappointing to me about this country is that this is a preventable tragedy this is a series of preventable tragedies and we have not been putting in the work to prevent it and that's that's disappointing it's it's one of the most uh one of the hardest things about this year is seeing at the beginning there's all this like sort of ridiculous over-the-top hero worship of frontline medical workers. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I don't want this, and it's not going to last. Because, you know, I don't, like, everything, you know, painting frontline workers as superheroes is just like, no, I, I'm not a superhero. A superhero is someone who consistently sacrifices themselves and has, an, uh, you know, an allegiance to a greater cause. That's not us. We're just people who have a shitty job to do. And it sucks knowing that the rest of America does not have our backs. They got bored with it, and now probably about, a, and I'm not going to give numbers, a whole, whole bunch of people are going to die in this country, and it's preventable. Man, that, yeah, I, I hate to hear it put like that. Now, do you, when you say we just have a shitty job, is that, now, you are in a, you, I would consider a genuinely frontline 
operator when it comes to uh, battling coronavirus and, and generally helping people through extremely tough times. Do you think that, do you think that the other people, they, they view it as we're just, we just have a shitty job or I don't, because I don't see it. I, I see it. It's like sometimes we are just thrust into positions like heroes are thrust into positions that they don't, you know, that's the unwilling hero. Like I don't want to have to do it. And I do see some of your work is what you're doing as God's work. Because look, I don't know what I believe when it comes to a higher power, but I believe in the things I see. And doctors are the only people that I've ever seen bring someone back to life. Okay? <laughs> like, I'm dead fucking serious, okay? And so that's why I understand maybe your perspective because you're kind of in the weeds and you don't see the forest from the trees. But I, 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 I think, yes, a lot of the honking at 7 o'clock every night or whatever, like, that's just people trying to make themselves feel better. Which is fine. Which is fine. Do whatever you have to do to make yourself feel better. And the billboards. Yeah, but I, I, I really would like to make that point clear. And I, and I hope other people don't feel like it's just a shitty job that they're doing. Because a lot of you and you and you and you, you're doing God's fucking work. And I, I, I'm not capable of it. I, I would push back on that. But you have a different job. And that job is also important. I don't think that you're not capable of doing the things that doctors do. Well, but that being said, I appreciate the perspective. Thank you very much. That actually does mean a lot to me. The, the analogy that I would use is going off to war. You can believe in a war as much as you want to. But at a certain point, when you're out in the trenches, it just sucks. Yeah. Like, there's, I don't, th you know, there's a small fraction of the population that is going to enjoy almost anything you put in front of them. There's, it's, I, I have a hard time thinking of a single activity that there isn't at least one person out there who's going to be real jazzed about. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> the weird world, yeah. Yeah, but, but for the most part, like, yeah, it is nice to feel like I am doing something important, and at the same time, it's exhausting, and it sucks. And, like, I, I work eight to ten days a month. That's it. That's the, the boundary that I've set. And there are some times that I work more shifts than that if people really need me to. Um, but, you know. And, and what's a shift? Like, give me, like, what's 12 hours, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. At a hospital. At a hospital, yeah. And it's just patient after patient right now, or what's it like? Um, you know, right now it still has a sort of calm before the, f the storm feel. Over the summer it was getting pretty gnarly. Um, and I think in the initial wave – March, April-ish, we were kind of worried because we didn't know what to expect, and we had no idea. It was just like, are we all going to get COVID, and are we all going to die? That was that was a very serious consideration that a lot of people had in the healthcare worker. Now, and I've heard that. Now now I feel like, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's a little bit more, since well, there's a little bit more understanding, do you know how to protect yourself better? Uh, we. It turns out that PPE really works. So, yeah, and that's well, what I've heard, yeah. yeah. So there, there are a couple of really good studies that came out of mostly New York, and I think there was one out of Belgium, and I know UCLA is doing one right now that essentially looks at what's your risk as a healthcare worker of actually getting coronavirus, and it looks to be comparable to or substantially lower, or significantly lower than that of the population in which you work. So if I'm going into work, as long as I've got my N95 mask, my face shield, we go into like full moon suits if we do a, what's called an aerosolizing procedure where you get you know, particles flying out of somebody's lungs. Um, but if you do that, if you wear that protection 
your chance of getting coronavirus is pretty low. Wow, that's that's yeah. wonderful. And what's the most uncomfortable piece? Like, what piece that? are you like, oh, fuck this piece? Um, when you have to do the head thing with the fan? I would say, yeah, the papper. Uh, <laughs> I've seen those yeah. a few times. They and it's, look It's It's gnarly. fun, honestly, wearing that. I was just like, oh, I get to wear, like, a big space suit to actually do a procedure. What sucks is when I then get stuck doing an intubation and then have to do like a central line or something after that. Um, and I can be in there for two hours. There's and one, there's, there's one point that I nearly passed out cause it was too hot and sweaty. And what is uh, a central line? Oh, a central line is a giant IV that goes into somebody's uh, neck. Ooh, yeah. that's see how you not say I could do it. I don't think so. My okay, mom so, will tell so you. So I fun can't. fact <laughs> about, about our first date anatomy lab in med school. Um, Weak stomachs, I apologize. But essentially, the first <laughs> thing that you do in anatomy lab is you skin a cadaver's back. And the major thing that I learned out of that is that serial killers have way too much time on their hands. That shit is annoying. It takes forever. Uh-huh. Um, oh, to really slice to someone really up. To really slice someone, <laughs> to really take the skin <laughs> off somebody's back. I mean, obviously, there's formaldehyde and other things involved. But, like, that process, we probably, 170-person class, we probably had half a dozen people pass out. Just straight up. For sure. You know, wow. like, look at while that. While doing it or Bludge- just while looking while at doing it? it? While looking at it, something along those lines. Day two, nobody. Once you once you move past that initial point, there's a lot of like buildup because of the unknown, and there's a lot of buildup because you just don't know what to expect. And you don't know how your body's going to react. And you get in there the second time, and the fucked up thing about anatomy lab is formaldehyde makes you feel hungry, and that's something that we <laughs> all have to like really consciously engage with and understand about ourselves that we're sitting in front of human cadavers and just be like You're thinking about breakfast when you got to slice yeah. a dude up. Yeah, oh, the worst. You know <laughs> I hate it when that is happens. it is it Red Swan that has like Jennifer Lawrence where she's like she slices off their skin. Makes it look very simple and easy. Whoa. But the one thing I would say is that, like, I still every once in a while will be like driving and get a flash of that image. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, so I just don't think day two anatomy <laughs> I'd be okay. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there's a certain amount of self selection as well. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Oh, totally. Now, okay, let's get into a little bit more of, of the mental evolution of things. Now, you are obviously a quite an open mind. Open-minded thinker. I would say amongst your peers, you probably, um, I wouldn't say probably, you uh, you have a, a bit of a different vibe to you. You st- maybe may stand out a little bit. I'm okay with that. And told there's nothing, absolutely <laughs> nothing wrong. Now, when I'm sure that as a, you know, this was probably developed as a child, very early. Um, any early memories of you being slightly different than of me being a fucking weirdo yeah when i was in when i was in uh middle school i would open up the door for everybody as they came through i'd do that while hopping around on one foot that was just just what i did because i felt a need to be (laughs) that be that dude yes i mean i was always i you know i always i find a way to stand out so i totally understand Mm -hmm. now i guess my next question for you is as you got older and adolescence high school, college years, ever experiment psychedelics? So, I am currently employed as a physician. And This would have been bad. Okay, this would have been well before. That's why I... Oh, um... Well, high school, college. This, Like I say, this wouldn't be anything current. Because my... my, I guess what I'm going to... You don't even have to talk... No, no, no. Here's the the framework in which we're going to use. Sure. I go to Burning Man. 
I have a lot of friends who do a lot of psychedelics. Okay. You want to talk about your friends' psychedelic experiences? We can talk well, about Well, so I wanted to talk, talk in about, general. We can talk about in general about my friends' psychedelic experiences. Perfect. But yeah. Perfect. No, and <laughs> however uh, however it's best because this is something that um, it's a reoccurring thing throughout my life about um, about um, resetting one's brain. Like yes. my introduction to LSD was very early, my high school years. I um I think it really opened my mind to a lot of different type of thought. Mm -hmm. Things that were right in front of me that I never saw before, and it carried over into my everyday life. Mm -hmm. And um, it really opened my mind to challenging things that, um, that were told to me for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Now, certain questions have been brought up to me, and people come to me all the time um, with a lot of of, with a lot of different problems and issues, and and it always comes back to me if they think um, they should do mushrooms or LSD or s DMT. I like I say I've dabbled and and most most of them just just to see. Now, when you're getting into an area like this, this is some of the esoteric stuff I was kind of talking about before. Things that are not easily understood and not even seen. Now. It's obvious we're all connected by energy, and it's obvious that when it comes to addiction and patterns, that firing the synapses for whatever, the six, eight hours, and then resetting the brain has been proven to be more than times than not healthy. You're talking about the use of LSD. LSD, mushrooms, uh, mm -hmm. psilocybin, I will say it wrong. Psilocybin. Psilocybin. I, I have my own words <laughs> just so you That's fine. <laughs> it's known. No, the, pur the purpose of language is to communicate. And if I know what you're saying, perfect. We yes. Achieve that. Yes. And most people know what I'm saying. I just yeah. say it my own way. Mm -hmm. Now, what are your thoughts about the use of stuff like this for, like I say, addiction, pattern changing? Some, like, I, I know firsthand experience people who have had serious alcohol issues. Mm -hmm. They take some mushrooms, no more problems. So I. I assume you're aware of this, but the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous was an advocate for the use of LSD. No, I no. Oh, yeah. Okay, so How to Change Your Mind, Michael Pollan, gets into this a little bit. He talks about the history of the use of psychedelics in the U.S. and sort of where things started and where things went way off the rails in the 60s, why these drugs are illegal, sort of the culture that surrounds that, and then talks a lot about his own personal experiences with psychedelics. Um, but, yeah. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, the the founder, was just like, yeah, we should be using LSD to help people break their addiction to alcohol. And what was the name of the book? Uh, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Yes, I. Uh, this will be my next Audible purchase. It should be. It's it's pretty good. After the first chaos. half of it is is mostly history, and the second half of it is a little more about his experiences. So, what are you, okay then? So, what are okay, your so thoughts? What are my yeah, thoughts? Yeah. Yes. What What are my thoughts? Um. So. Being a guy who tries to keep up on the science, I'm going to start with this, the, the scientific evidence. Uh, are you familiar with MAPS? Sure. Okay. So MAPS has been running studies for you know the use of MDMA in... And explain what MAPS oh, is. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yes, yes, MAPS so. is the Multidis Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. They're a group that's been around 20, 30, potentially even a little bit longer years. Um, and their goal is to essentially try to get studies done through the FDA for FDA approval of primarily psilocybin and MDMA mm -hmm. in the use of clinical treatment of disorders or mental states. Um, 
And that's a different approach than a lot of groups have. A lot of groups like go sort of the medical marijuana route where they're like, we think marijuana is good. We're going to come up with a bunch of conditions that it might be able to treat and we're going to let people vote on it. Oh, so that's why you see the places that it actually does get on the ballot for legalization of whatever. It's because, oh, it treats this and this and this. So that's an interesting. That is that is an approach that people were taking with marijuana in the yes. earlier mm-hmm. days. So what, uh, what they're trying is instead of through ballot measures, they're essentially trying to get the FDA, FDA to what's do what's called descheduling yeah. these substances. So a schedule is, you know, when I write a medication for somebody that comes up somewhere on DEA schedule, schedule one is not legal for any reasons. And mm-hmm. that includes things like LSD and marijuana and a surprisingly small number of other drugs. Something yeah. like uh, cocaine is actually schedule two because you can use it as, a, as an eye anesthetic, yeah. et cetera. Um, and so it goes all the way down to schedule six. And I don't really care about the differences in there. Uh, schedule one, I can't uh, prescribe everything else I can. Um, And so the idea is to try to get these drugs descheduled and moved into the category of clinically useful. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oregon's ballot measure, one of the things that they legalized, in addition to small amounts of drugs for recreational use, they decriminalized that. The other thing that was on there is they said it is now legal in the state of Oregon, not decriminalized, actually legal to study psilocybin as a substance that could have medical use. Which is huge, right? Because I know that's like a thing with medical marijuana and psilocybin also is like in order to do these tests you're under like you could be breaking federal law and so you're like running this huge risk while trying to get millions of dollars in order to even do the test while also trying to get the fda to even like accept it it's like you're fighting this crazy uphill battle where it's really i think impressive and it's i think entirely to the credit of maps that they're doing it not you know with medical marijuana it was almost like kind of jokey at the end it was like oh i have a little headache or i can't sleep at night and they're like okay it got voted got passed but the way that they're going to be doing it with psilocybin is it's going to be like irrefutable it'll be like medically proven and accepted so like it won't just be how someone you know there's still that a decent stigma when it comes to certain areas what are your thoughts about the irrefutability of it I don't think there's anything that's irrefutable, but I well, I, I, would yeah. agree, I think yeah. there would be a decent amount of clinical evidence that sure. demonstrates efficacy is the language that I would use. Thank but, you. But yes, still. Yes. Yeah. So to answer your question, I think that um, for the use of depression, for the use of PTSD, there is a decent amount of evidence and moving into stronger and stronger evidence. There are some phase three trials for the use of psilocybin in, you know, treatment resistant depression, run of the mill depression, not to belittle people who have run of the mill depression um (laughs) and um you know a couple of other areas that being said in terms of using psilocybin for positive personality change or positive change in your outlook um i would definitely recommend it um i think acid is a much nicer drug to your brain and why is that Mm. which one yeah acid why is it a nicer drug to your brain because the uh, the the mushrooms are an actual poison uh, everything's a poison if you take enough of it. But oh, um, oh, fair, fair. <laughs> touche. Yeah. But uh, no, I think it's just the experiences that I know about that people have had on LSD are typically a little bit more fun and a little bit less dark. So I have a friend who took, you know, 10 grams of mushrooms, which is three eighths, which is more than I would actually recommend anybody ever take. Holy shit. And spent a while just like hanging out at the center of the universe, getting yelled at by demons. And the work she was able to do in that place was just, oh, I know this experience is going to end. This sucks and this is horrible. And also I know it has an end point and I can get through this. And so those demons were obviously a lot of 
not obviously, but were like a lot of negative self-talk, a lot of sort of externalization, even in the internal mind, of things that she was worried about with herself. And she was able to say, you know what, these are just voices, and I'm not going to die if I listen to these things. And so that was a that was a very difficult experience, but I think she ended up taking a lot of positive things from it. Well, a couple questions, and because my thoughts on experiences like that, yes, that, that is, I would not recommend taking that that many mushrooms, but also if one has an experience like that, maybe they needed it. I mean, I don't think you're taking 10 grams of mushrooms unless you're trying to go to Chinatown. Like, unless you're really trying to see what the fuck is fishy. Well, she did it on a dare, but yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, but no, we, we've all yeah, been yeah, dared. Yeah. We've all been dared things. to do things that we don't that's do. Fair. So, yeah. So that's why I feel like there's, that's an experience that that person probably had to go through. Because I know, oh man, I, I mean, I have never... He, I may, my mind may work at a certain rate that I could have been diagnosed with ADHD as a child and my mother never, never um, wanted, you know, uh, he's hyper, let him learn, you know, and, and I think I'm very thankful. I think it was very valuable for my mental development. I took Ritalin one time, like it in college, someone, you know, people, I took it one time. It was the closest I think I ever came to a psychotic episode. Hmm. Be, you know, because my mind, the way I compartmentalize thought, the way I move through my brain, it it was it was a mess that I could not hold in control. But that was the only moment where I felt that, where I know there's going to be an end point and I just want to get there. Yeah. That being said, that experience taught me I'm never going to do that shit ever again. So maybe I had to go through that to feel that. And maybe whatever demons that person is feeling, it's something that they have to go through. I, but that's kind of how I look at. But is there a risk? I'm wondering, just like, is there a true risk of getting yelled at by the demons? There, there are risks. I mean, I think when you're in the middle of a psychedelic trip, the the biggest concern that I think a lot of people have had, and this the sort of the way that I would describe it, you know, people talk about bad trips. I like to talk about challenging trips mm -hmm. because whether something is good or bad is how you contextualize it in your mind. Um, the things that people have had during challenging experiences is they are worried that they have discovered something about themselves that they didn't want to know that is going to be true after the trip. And that is one of the worst things you can go through in a psychedelic experience. If you just discover, because in the middle of a psychedelic experience, you don't really have a good frame of reference and your connection with the rest of reality, you don't have access to those same states that you do when you're sober. And so if you're high on mushrooms, if you're high on acid, and you suddenly realize, for better or worse, that your friends aren't really your friends, they're just kind of tolerating you, and you don't bring any value to those relationships, then you can feel like you're in a position where, like, oh, I can't reach out to people because suddenly I'm asking them for a favor, and that's going to you know, throw off the balance, and then they're going to like me even less. And so you can get stuck very much in that kind of situation. Now... The thing that I take heart in is that the people who have had difficult experiences, and this is this is demonstrated in literature, is the people who have difficult experiences while on psychedelics actually have greater positive change with regards to openness, depression, several other aspects of their personality. Again, back to the point that I think I was just, I feel like, I don't know what a, a truth serum may really be, but when you, when I have at least, mm -hmm. and I cannot speak for anyone else, when I have 
had difficult or challenging experiences like that, I have always been better for it. Mm -hmm. Like I've seen things that were right in front of my face. And even in the choices I'm currently making with, I see um, friends that weren't really my friends. And I'm not even saying it's the same circumstance, but that is a situation that really happens in life where we realize that our friends are, they don't really give a fuck about you. And maybe it's sometimes you have to let things go and people run their course. You know, sometimes not every friendship and relationship is going to last. Mm-hmm. Forever. That's that's true. I think it's difficult when that happens at a party and the people you are thinking that about are right in front of you. Yeah, I don't and like to trip at parties. For your friends, do you think that there is like a right place? Because I know from like little experience of like learning that like tolerance is different, different places. Mm-hmm. Like, do you think that it's ever a good idea to like for your friends to trip or experiment? in groups or like not never alone like is there like a rule that's best some of the best well i think it depends i mean some of some of the most transformational and important experiences in lsd that i know about have occurred with people doing it solo okay um some real fun things and some really important things have happened doing in groups like i said burning man is phenomenal Mm -hmm. you know going out with a group of people when some people are taking substances and then I do partner acrobatics, so doing partner acrobatics while on LSD with the number of people who are capable of keeping you safe, things along those lines, that's pretty kick That's also why you're so jacked, do you think the you're acrobatics, <laughs> I get it now. <laughs> do you think having like a person to make sure that you are safe, like, you know, moving forward when you're going to be, you know, possibly able to like give advice on that, do you think that you should always have someone who is babysitting you or just at least to check in with after a few hours? I think it really depends on your level of experience with the drug. Okay. Um, I think that I would never recommend doing a new substance without someone <laughs> you can check in with who has some sort of information about that or at least knows you super well. Um, but, you know, if you're in a situation with a bunch of your friends where you all have a decent amount of psychedelic experience and you trust each other and you understand where you're going and what you're going to do and you want to take you know, a decent amount of drugs along with other people who are on the same wavelength, that can also be really fun. I, If there's one caveat that I try to always say when people come to me for – and I am not the foremost authority. It's just I – have a lot of friends who are much less experienced in the substance. Like they never, they never had the freedoms that I did as a as a youth. You know, so now they're experimenting as adults. And if there's one thing that I always try to lay out is have intention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just is same with the, with this show. The same with why I make decisions. You must have intention because, and just the way like you were talking about your medical career, you can see the a linear aspect on okay, if I have intention, then maybe I can, I can this point to this point and this point to this point. And at least you can, you can move directionality because sometimes it's like people are, and this happens to me very much. My mind gets scattered and busy and the, we decide to put values on things that are totally irrelevant to the universe or whatever you want to call it. It's the values that we put on it based on our experience or whatever. And I think, my intention sometimes is just clear the brain, just reset the brain, reset the value system because I'm putting so much values on these friendships or these missed opportunities or these yeah. things that doesn't matter. It, it generally, like it may matter, but it doesn't, the future I believe is in our hands. 
I don't like to believe in destiny because it somehow uh, implies that the future is not in my control. Mm-hmm. You know, and granted, I'm, the way that I'm chemically hardwired, I can only make certain decisions. Like, I cannot make just certain other de- yes. I cannot. There's, there's a thread in there that I kind of want to pick up. Yes, Which is, please. you were talking about me setting my intention in medical school and how I've gotten to where I am today and about that having an intention. And, and something I'd, I'd like to postulate is that yeah. destiny makes a lot of sense in retrospect. It's hard to know where we're going to go, but we're very <laughs> good at telling stories about where we've been. God, that's <laughs> it's that... Fuck, I will put that in my pocket and use that. It's real, don't, because it is extreme. And in retrospect, destiny makes a shit ton of sense. Oh, of course I was here to get to here to, yeah. to go over there. But when you're looking forward, it's all very yeah foggy. It's crazy. And I think that th- this gets to sort of a central point about my exploration of consciousness and, you know, through various methods is that we are really good at telling ourselves stories and those stories are really good at making sense of what's going on. And those stories are useful, but those stories aren't the only way of seeing what's happened. You know, there's a, there's a way of looking like I mentioned, I'm very happy with my work-life balance, and that's because I've made a lot, of, a lot of decisions sort of in that direction. But in a very real sense, I could have missed this career pretty easily. Like I went into critical care because I wanted to do critical care, but I could have been, you know, wanted to do cardiology. I could have wanted to do GI, something along those lines. And it's very hard to live a lifestyle with the way that I do and have the friends that I have and, you know, go to the events that I go to um, if I'm working in anything besides pulmonology and critical care. And so in, you know, right now I'm very glad with where I ended up, but I think that a lot of that is just dumb luck. I just happened to choose something that, that fit together. And I'm sure that if I were, you know, in some other medical specialty, like if I really wanted to be a pediatrician and be working five and a half days a week and be on call on a regular basis and not feel like I had an opportunity, the story that I'm telling myself might be, well, I really care about kids. I really care about this particular thing, and that's why I'm spending so much time on it, even if, you know, a slightly different set of scenarios, I'd be spending a lot less time on it. Two questions. Don't you think this is just our brain's natural... Uh, connect the dots mechanism. And then secondly, what what is your definition of luck? Because you say it's dumb luck. I say luck is nothing more than preparation meeting opportunity. I, I think that's a totally reasonable way of putting it. Le- what I mean in this particular context is that the things that I value about my current position are not the things that I valued when making decisions that got me here. And so I wasn't I wasn't planning I wasn't optimizing for, you know, work-life balance. That is not something, you know. I got when to, did you start to do that? Because you obviously have. Oh, like two and a half years ago. I was so the, after, after your fellowship? Uh, during my PhD. I basically, oh. I was just like, oh, yeah, I'm interested in this degree because, you know, having two doctoral degrees, that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I was like, I do not want to do academic medicine. I was just like, fuck, what do I do with my life? Like, how do I make that work? And then realizing that I was just like, oh, I have I have things I, w- I have things that I want to accomplish. I have shit I want to do, I think. And that was the biggest jump for me is actually like realizing I don't want to be in academics. I don't know what I want to do, but I don't want to do this. And that's a really scary decision. And then the fact that I've managed to make something that's filled that that space and that I don't feel like I'm wasting my life, that's only something that I've managed to really step into in the course of the last five, six months. Wow. Yeah. Do so, you, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Do you know what the impact you want to make is? Like you're saying that you maybe don't know what you, what you want to use, but 
what are you kind of working towards? That's so with much the better than the question I was. <laughs> <laughs> TBD. Um, <laughs> what impact do I want to have? Um, you know, it's tough because I don't have. There are two ways of answering that question. There's the like, I want to build a labyrinth. That's something I've wanted to do since I was four. Um, <laughs> of course and so like Where, yeah. yeah i don't know i don't know there's okay. like there's a lot of things that would okay, need cool. you know <laughs> maybe i can just make a video game and be pretty happy yeah, with that like okay. that's that's something along those lines but like that is a goal that i want to have i want to leave okay. the the world with like a an interconnected series of puzzles that is beautiful like cool. that's a thing that i want to do so there's that way of answering the question you know i want to create a community for my friends and then there's this sort of like i want to make the world a better place and in between that it's really hard to give a solid answer so i have mm -hmm. Some goals that, you know, I'll get to eventually, and I have some general directions, but I don't really feel like I have a good way of answering that question, and that's something that I'm really engaging with. Do you think what you're doing uh, in the medical field mm. is teaching you little lessons along the way that are helping you to use that information if you do make your labyrinth? Like, is there going to be a through line? Um, I don't think it's possible to have experiences that don't influence Okay. The rest yeah. of your life. So, uh, yeah, I, d I don't think it is possible for me to create a labyrinth that does not involve my experience as a doctor in some way, shape, or form because it's part of who I am. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I I, I, I think that's absolutely beautiful. Like, um, the whole... Uh, you're such a complex person, and I think no, and I we and are that's all a, complex people. No, no, we are, but uh, but um, not we're not all understanding of what our particular complexities are. Okay, do, do you understand? I, I think that takes that takes a very strong individual to look inside, and I I even when I called you a man of science, <laughs> you immediately shrugged it off. Now I can now I beginning to see some of the layers in which in which made you shrug, shrug that off. So. Before we get too far, um, we talked about the, the dosing, but like the major dosing, like the yeah. 10 grams and getting going, what I call going to Chinatown and seeing what's fishy. Yeah. Now, what about microdosing? What What are your thoughts about the the the, the tiny little bit? Just I, I I don't even know what a real microdose is. That's just a, 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 a term that was coined by Silicon Valley some years ago, yeah. I suppose. By executives who thought they could do that and then go to a meeting and, and create... I mean, arguably, know. a microdose is anything you can do and go to a meeting. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> good. Then we're, then we're doing good on our dosing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, what do I think about microdosing? Um, you know, not really something I have a whole lot of opinions about, to be totally honest. I think that if... You know, it's, it's sort of like any other substance. If somebody is like, hey, I, you know, I'm more creative when I'm smoking a little bit of weed or when I'm on a, a low-dose edible, when I do a CBD edible. Some people are like, yeah, I'm, I'm more limber socially when I've had a small amount of alcohol. Uh, you know, I feel like I can dance better when I'm on like a little sniff of ketamine, something like that. You know, if you, if you have a small dose that you feel like enhances a particular experience for you, then... I don't think that's a problem. So, you know, psychedelics have this advantage of really not being habit forming ever. And so in the way that, you know, doing a little bit of Coke on a regular basis is probably not the best idea. Doing a little bit of psychedelics on, the, on a regular basis, is, I don't think there's a downside to that. Yeah. Now, why, why, why is it not habit forming? There's so much to that. Why is it not habit forming? And also what... What are the I, I've seen ketamine go from 
totally obscure to almost mainstream. Mm-hmm. Almost, in a, literally a blink of an eye. Yeah. And maybe that's my perception, blink of an eye. Thoughts about that progression. And I know that an inhaler has been... Yeah, so there's, a, there's a nasal rocket for esketamine, which is a an anti. It's a one of it's a form of ketamine, and it's used to help treat depression. And there's different forms of it. There's yeah, th- I mean, there's basically ketamine. There's esketamine. Esketamine is basically just a, I think it's a L enantiomer. It's it's a one version of the molecule that they were able to patent. Mm-hmm. But ketamine's been around for a long time. I give people ketamine all the time when I'm doing intubations or things along those. Yeah, lines. And I've heard and I've heard it's yeah. very effective. Yeah, it's and, super great and, for that. And what what are the thoughts about that? That is an antidepressant. Yeah, um, I think it works well for some people. I think there's a decent evidence base behind that. Yeah, I like I say, I to each his own. I I don't understand. I I feel like some people back back to the point where you know about microdosing. I th- I think some people. I I don't know why psychedelics are are may be good for some people or not. Like, I don't know. My my experience has never been micro. It's always been macro dosing. Yeah. But, I mean, some drugs work well for different people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What What are your thoughts, Madison? Oh, about... Ma- microdosing. Okay. What are your thoughts? So, you know I'm a big uh, fan of microdosing, and I was especially happy to be able to ask you questions because in the beginning I was, like, very all about, like, every person I was that would, you know, I wasn't just, like, evangelizing it, but if somebody was like, oh, I really want to, like, cut back on drinking or I'm having a hard time with anxiety, I'd be like, you have to try microdosing. I microdosed uh, for 90 days straight, and then after that, I didn't really feel the need to, like, continue, and it was interesting because through at about day 30, I was like, oh, I'm never going to be able to, like, not do this because I just feel, like, so much better, and then when that 90 days that I had set for myself came, I really didn't feel like, and it's interesting with it not being habit forming because you would think you'd be able to make a habit out of something like that. But I really felt like the job that I had not even known I wanted to have accomplished was, but I was so big on telling everyone, like, you should really try it, you should really try it. And then one girlfriend of mine was like, well, I don't think it's good for everyone to do it. And I had never thought outside of myself in that case of anything other than, like, super positive. Mm -hmm. But even if it's not, like, a a neurological issue or whatever, I hadn't thought of, like, you know, you're in a field where that isn't, like, maybe looked at in a good way. And so if you get someone down this path, it's going to maybe shift their trajectory, for better or for worse, whatever. But do you feel like you um, are kind of putting up a shield with, you know, in your field of, like, not wanting people to, like, know that you, like, support or you're interacting with people who um, do use psychedelics? Do you feel like you're you're worried at all? Um, right, did I change that? I'm, you touched on a bunch of things that I kind of want to yeah. get to there. Um, the first thing that I would say is, uh, no, I don't feel like I have to put up too much of a shield. I think that if I was like, hey, you should consider the use of psychedelics in the following areas that are well studied, I don't think anybody would really blink an eye at that. Okay, that's amazing. Um, in terms of, you asked a question about why are psychedelics not addictive. Yes. We don't have a good answer for that because we don't know exactly how the brain works. The simplest answer I can say is that they work predominantly on the serotonin system, uh, dopamine is primarily responsible for addiction. It looks like maybe glutamine a little bit, but probably dopamine. Something like cocaine works directly on the dopamine system. It's super addictive. Something like psychedelics don't. They're not. Um, psychedelics aren't addictive for basically the same reason that aspirin isn't addictive. And, and is is that the not, not to get uh, far from, but the uh, dopamine deficit deficit state is something that they're finding that social media seems to cause. Yeah, a lot I'm, of I'm. What gonna, are your thoughts about that? Uh, 
can we skip out on that? Because that's sure. a totally separate line. Sure, of, yeah, of, yeah, 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 sure, absolutely. Yeah. No, 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 um, yeah. But with regards to what you were saying, yeah, I think there are some people who have a very difficult time on psychedelics. I think there are some people who, you know, you can't do psychedelics and run away from a problem, mm-hmm. right? It puts that problem, it puts it right in your face. And the more you try to run away from something, have you heard the only way out is through Yeah. on psychedelics? Yeah, so if you are, are somebody who has a lot of anxiety and, you, you know, I have a... I know someone who had a really hard time doing psychedelics for years because he was pursuing a career in music and realized that every time he did psychedelics, he got really anxious about what he was doing with his life. And he was just like, I couldn't do acid for five, 10 years straight. Um, There are people who have done enough psychedelics and had just really negative experiences that prevent them from ever going back to that. Um, There's a girl, her name is Ayala. She's among other things, a porn star. Um, but she wrote a really fascinating blog post um, called You Will Forget, You Have Forgotten um, about her use of psychedelics and just how she ended up doing a lot of acid over a long period of time and just went to a super dark place Mm -hmm. um, with all that. And that's something that I point people to when they ask, like, hey, is this for everybody? And I'm just like, well, I don't want to turn you off to this, but, like, this is somebody who had an experience that was not positive. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, to, to what you're saying. And then the other thing that you said, was that after 90 days you felt like you got what you wanted to out of it. And I think that's a fairly common experience. Um, With drugs in general, they move in and out of our lives in ways that, you know, are are almost like relationships. A decent number of people, like, you don't meet a lot of 60-year-old heroin addicts, and it's not because they're all dead. A lot of them are, but a lot of them just stop using it at a certain point. Like heroin is super addictive; it's really hard to quit. And why is that? That is a. It is interesting. I yeah, I don't know, but it's true. Um, and the same thing happens with alcoholics. A lot of them just sort of hit a point, and they're like, "You know what? I'm done with this." And with psychedelics specifically, there's a concept of like, don't pick up the phone if it's not ringing. Don't mm-hmm. do an acid trip if you don't feel like you're going to get something out of it. Obviously, when you haven't done psychedelics before, it's impossible to know that. But, like, for people who have a decent amount of experience, there are times where, you know, I've known people who are just like, do I want to do acid today? I don't. Yeah. I don't. That's not yeah. what I want to do. Even though I set aside this time, I woke up in this morning, this morning, I was just like, mm, no, not feeling it. And that's fine. Don't trip at that point. But if you hit the point where you're just like, yeah, I really need to pull this into my life. I really need to, like, get involved with this drug. Sometimes that's when a lot of personal growth can happen. And I also think that's also kind of manifestation, though. It's like how you do with almost anything in your life. And this is this is you you put that energy out there that I this this whatever I want to interact with it somehow, whatever forces that may be, maybe it's just the fact that you put it out in the energy, that energy, the universe and your subconsciously making decisions to kind of incrementally move you towards whatever that may be. Manifestation is just preparation meeting opportunity, man. (laughs) (laughs) I like this guy. Now, hold on. And this, this was like the, my first experiences with DMT. Now, Uh I think it was something that kept popping up in my life in super odd ways. Mm-hmm. Now, for those that don't know DMT, what is it? DMT, dimethyltryptophan, something like yes, that? Yes, yes. Um, it's from the same vine that you get ayahuasca from. So okay. ayahuasca is essentially DMT plus a stabilizer, so it stays in your body for six, eight hours, um, does a bunch of other things. DMT is you take that and you smoke it. There's also 5-MeO-DMT. Mm-hmm. Which is. Which yes. is from what a bo- uh, frog, a Sonoran desert toad, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I can actually talk about my experiences with that because I did them in a basement in Guadalajara. Um, but 
Yeah. Wow. DMT itself is, uh, yeah, it's a fairly rapid acting one. There are some theories that it's the same chemical that gets released in your brain when your body is convinced that you're going to die. So if you're falling out of an airplane on the way down, you get a light show, you see your life flash before you, uh, your eyes, things like that. That is theoretically a DMT-mediated experience, although there are some other things going on there as well because it's not the same as the DMT experiences that people explain. But it is the DMT, like, molecule? Uh, it's same? a naturally occurring molecule. Like, okay. you know, yeah. drugs don't work unless they're acting on a receptor sure. that's ready for that drug. And it may be that part of the drug molecule looks like serotonin, or it may be because that drug is naturally occurring. You got cannabinoids in your body, you got DMT in your body, you got all sorts of stuff. What would be the best way that you describe the DMT experience? I do not have a lot of experience with DMT. Um, okay. What I have experience with is 5-MeO DMT, which is given in medicine ceremonies. Um, and the frog licking. Yeah. If you lick the frog, you're not going to have a really good time. Um, <laughs> I've always wondered. Just because licking a frog is unpleasant? No, or? because it, because it's actually toxic. And okay. so, yeah, like by, by heating it up enough, you get, you sort of burn, burn the toxic parts. Yeah. yeah. Um, the experience that I had with 5-MeO-DMT, um, I was at an acrobatics convention with a friend of mine down in near Guadalajara, and then we ended up running into this guy who was learning how to to serve it, I think it's called Sepito is the local name, but he felt called to do this, was working with a shaman, and he was just like, hey, if you want to come over and have this happen. So uh, the friend I was with and I were just like, yeah, let's let's make this happen. Let's go out and do this. And the experience that I had, um, first off, you smoke it out of a crack pipe. I just need to get that sort of out there. And that's because the same principles apply to smoking crack cocaine as they do to DMT, which is you want to get this thing hot, and you want it entirely vaporized, and then you want to suck a whole lot of it at the same time, and you do that through the same mechanism. So you have something that looks sort of like a giant test tube. It's got a cork in the top, and it's got a straw going through the cork. Wow. Okay. Was that intimidating? Just seeing, just It was not. I've device? never seen a crack pipe in real life, <laughs> so I was just like, this seems like an efficient device. So, yeah. Wow, yeah, I've only ever seen them on crackheads around the around the block. And that's usually a crack piece. Yes. yes. Oh, that's yeah. Fair. So that's different. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. So, um, you do this? Is there a ceremony? There is ceremony. Oh, yeah. Because and I think the ceremony, like set and setting, right, are a big part of the psychedelic experience. But the ceremony is, um, and for people uh, just tuning into the psychedelic experience, set is how your mindset when you that you bring to something. Setting is what's actually going on at that time. And the one piece of advice I would say for anybody engaging in psychedelics, you can change your setting. It will change what's going on inside. Wow. Yeah. So if you're, so for DMT specifically, there was an altar setup that had a couple things, leaves, a couple icons, some feathers. Uh, I was smoking it with this guy, with the shaman. And when a shaman serves this medication, uh, this medicine to you, um, they take it themselves as well, um, it, which is fascinating to me because it's a pr profoundly disabling experience. And so the first time that I took some of this, you know, they cooked it up, and it's it's hard to take because you essentially breathe all the way out, and then you breathe all the way in, and you try to get this into your lungs, and you do like three really deep breaths and breath holds. Uh, if you cough, you're losing a lot of that medication, and it's very irritating. It has a very sort of chemical feel to it. The coughing. Uh, just the medication. Oh, just it. Okay. Yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. smell okay. and taste to it. Got it. Uh, and that's a problem with DMT as well, from what I understand. Um, yes. But this time, so I got this, and the first thing that happened is I was just like, oh, I should probably lie down. So I ended up lying down on this crash pad they had set behind me. I started off sitting. I ended up lying down, and then 
um, sort of melted down into the ground. I felt like I weighed probably about 5,000 pounds. Not like I was being crushed, but I was like I was made out of stone and part of the floor. And just this incredibly relaxing experience. And like when I close my eyes, I usually see, you know, any variety of like patterns, things on the back of my eyelids, stuff like that. This is the only time I've ever closed my eyes and seen just white. And that was very weird. It's sort of this like white room experience. And some people in DMT have called this like part of the waiting room or the tunnel to like the rest of the DMT world. And that was it. That was it. I basically did that for a little while and then eventually came around and I was just like, man, did I fuck this up? So you don't feel like you crossed to the other side, as they would say. I did not. And so I was just like, did I fuck this up? Like this is supposedly the most powerful hallucinogen in the world. And I just had kind of a forgettable experience it was interesting but it was disappointing and i i remember sort of like eventually sitting up and i was looking at these guys and they had both taken some d you know some of the five meo and just like looking and they were looking and i was like am i did i do something did i uh, am i meeting expectations that's sort of something mm-hmm. that i thought mm-hmm. and then i noticed they're like they're cooking up another dose and i was like oh, i wonder who that's for so that was for me um, and the time that I took the second dose is really wild. That's one of the craziest things that's ever happened to me. Really? And so what happened there is when I close my eyes, wh- what do you see when you close your eyes? Let's say you just close your eyes. There isn't a bright light source. Like what, how would you describe what you see? <laughs> I, for me, DMT is, it's. Oh, not DMT. Just, just oh, regular. When you, when you close your eyes, mm-hmm. um, I would say it would be the the remnants of what was there and it begins to fade um, as a dream me. Yeah. It's poetic. I like that. I don't know. Mine's just dark. It was always annoying as a kid. I had a hard time like imagining images, but yeah, it's pretty dark. (laughs) Yeah. So for me, like the thing that I actually physically see is, is dark. It's brown or black, but it looks almost like an undulating snake skin pattern, something like that. And like, you'll, you'll see just like you, because your brain makes stuff up when you can't see anything. So it was that, but in super high relief, black and white, almost looked like a bunch of interlocking, interlocking pinwheels. And I felt myself, I remember the thought that I had was just, oh shit. That was the thought that went through my mind. And I just like, got sort of blasted upwards and into that pattern. And the only thing that was happening for a while was that pattern. I wasn't happening. I wasn't experiencing that pattern. That pattern was just existing. And I didn't have the feeling that I could see that because there was no I, there was no subject in that sentence. There was just an object, which is this pattern exists. And then the experience was a little bit easier to understand in reverse, where my brain sort of was like, hey, you can see that. Oh, there's an I. I can see something. Mm -hmm. What can I see? Can I? What am I doing? Where am I? Am I okay? This is obviously not normal. I've clearly, oh, I took some kind of drug. Here I am. Okay, I have a body. My body exists. I'm back into this. I can't move, but I can tell that it's here. I'm sort of very heavy. I'm on the floor. I have this sort of like warm feeling suffusing my entire body. Did I pee on myself? Because it really felt like that. I was like, you know, probably not. And also, if I did, that's actually fine. I feel comfortable with everybody I'm around. And then they did this thing, uh, and I was just, I, I, you know, I sort of felt the sensation start to come back and the strength start to come back to my body. And they did this thing to help take me out of it where they actually took water and sprinkled it on my feet and on my hands and then on my head and then, like, all over my body. And they were blowing, like, smoke and, like, wafting leaves over me. Um, as a way of just sort of like reintegrating senses. Were there any sound bowls? There was no sound bowl, no, but there was music. Yeah. So that was nice. Yeah. 
Now, have you had any experience with DMT? Yeah, I, yeah um, only once. And uh, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of the stories that I've heard have been like way more intense. And yours actually sounds like the most like what I experienced where <laughs> um, I didn't really know exactly what I was expecting. And I, I wasn't expecting anything like too wild, but it was just really geographic. No, that's not the right word. Uh, geometric. Like geometric. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Like geometric. It was like I was looking at this thing, and I was also, it. I wasn't thinking of myself as much as I was seeing this, like, very cool pattern of these, like, bricks kind of, like, building, and then they just tumbled, and then I was, like, I, I wouldn't say that I was disappointed, but I thought that, oh, this is going to be, like, the next thing. Like, I thought it was going to start to be, like, this, like, oh, it's going to get wild, like a roller coaster, mm-hmm. and then that was it. And then I have been interested in trying it again because after that I realized that I like really hadn't gone into it with like the right respect for what I could have gotten out of it because I realized that felt like it was like kind of walls or like um, defense mechanisms and then they had crumbled and then I felt very raw and exposed for like two weeks. I was like, oh, fuck, I really wish that I would have like, you know, given a little bit more respect to what the situation would have been so I could have more prepared and that was totally on me because I'm like very not the kind of person to randomly be like oh yeah sure I'll try that but I was with a friend at their house and uh, I had been there for a couple of days so I just felt like oh and I trusted them and they had done it a bunch and uh, I think it could I think I could have a better experience but I do respect that um, it was cool to find out that I was guarding myself a lot unnecessarily mm-hmm. I, I don't I maybe I'm just a crazy person. I I, you know I. It doesn't I, invalidate your experience. You sure know it. <laughs> Goddamn right. I uh, <laughs> I have looked deep into my mind. We can put it that way. And um, I've challenged my mind in so many ways since a youth. You know, just to see where the bounds are and to see what it really is. And um, for me, DMT and anything. Th- I'm DMT specifically. It is um, it is the only thing that I feel like has taken me to what I believe because I don't know what I believe religiously. I know what I believe religiously, but I don't know how to express it without offending people. But I truly believe in intelligent design because I have seen it. Okay, I have seen perfect design. I've also seen it, you know, by nature. We deteriorate, we destroy everything, everything we do. We'd start perfect and it's just all, everything, you know, that is the flaw in our, our human design and everything. Is we, that a flaw or a feature? Like decay is a well, part of life. Well, it's, I don't know. Well, th- that's the thing. That's a great way to, that's a, a way I would have never looked at it. But I, for a moment, for I'm I, not even a, it's just a hair of a moment. I saw what space and time was. I could never possibly understand. My mind is not powerful, but for a singular That's moment, what I want. <laughs> and, and and that, and I saw it, and I will never forget what I saw, and I could never describe. Words are not powerful enough to describe what I saw, and it, sometimes when I question even like what I do and the feelings that I get and should I, am I doing the right thing? Should I follow through with what I believe? Sometimes it's, it's what I have to do. Mm -hmm. I go back to these images that are just, it it is grander than my mind could even 
express. So I believe in something, something greater than than words may ever do that I could ever show other people. And that is also like, it is the belief in things that are unseen that I started this whole journey with that we talked about. It's sometimes, as a man of science, I believe there are moments where there are things that are greater than what science can yet describe. Maybe it is the understanding of gravitational waves or the interconnectivity of simple uh, electric, you know, the, the, an electric uh, being, you know, like, or even like a non-living being, like the, the molecules that bind us together somehow, you know, there, there's something that I, I don't know and I saw it and I felt it and I believe it in my mind. And I believe it in my heart and in my soul. And sometimes I can get other people to see it and feel it also. And that, to me, that's what, maybe that's what I'm here to do, mm -hmm. you know? And maybe that's why I see these grand things and why I push myself to try to, to try to just show others that what may be there. Maybe, maybe it's not, but maybe it is. And until you open your mind, you can't see that and you can't feel it and you can't have that 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 same fire that that i believe is right there that's beautiful i love that yeah <laughs> thanks for sharing that i, I love <laughs> these episodes you get so open <laughs> i just love it. no 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 i am i'm a man of a lot of things but emotion is is one of them you i be sure a man of emotions <laughs> no and it is and i and i've you know and i come from a place of um i i not showing emotion was very common in my family. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, for one reason or another. And I realized that not only am I an emotional being, like my flaws and my strengths are going to come in my acknowledgement of how things really are. And my flaws are equally as important as my gifts. And I think you have really given a, a very calm and gentle scientific explanation to some of i suppose my you know my my deeper internal struggles mm -hmm. because i do struggle sometimes to try to explain this to people and i do want to be a great unifier but but sometimes i feel like it's oh that's so far out of my grasp like i i i don't think that the experience of divine moments while on psychedelics is at odds with science. I don't, I think that... That's so, that's profound. Yeah, well, you know, just because we can say why we're experiencing something doesn't change the, ex the fact of that experience, right? There are people who go out there and, you know, they, s they see God in waterfalls or something like that, or they have moments of, like, profound divinity. And even if you understood everything that was going on you know, profound experience of the divine. And even if you understood everything that was going on inside that person's brain and you could quantify that, which we don't have the capability of doing, but even if you could say, oh, yeah, this is because, you know, you got these neurotransmitters upregulated and you were thinking about this other thing and that sort of fit together, that's what that experience felt like, and we can reproduce it. That doesn't change the fact that to that person, it feels very real and very important. And what's more, we don't have an experience with reality outside of our own perception. And so... Yeah, that's pretty real. 
but the the whole the part that I struggle with is perception, mm-hmm. because I understand that no one can see the world the way I can. So sometimes that's why I question not it's not necessarily my sanity, <laughs> but I question my. I, I I don't question what I see, but I question if I'm seeing everything. If I'm missing something, you, you are. know, if I you are it, not seeing everything, and, and that's why I try to bring in individuals like you and you, and and I try to have people that challenge me and who aren't don't just tolerate me as as we discussed before. And this is some of the struggles because I want the best for everyone, and I do like the friends that I bring into my life. It's because I chose to bring you in, and I want a friendship with you. But not everyone can reciprocate in the way that we want, and I I have great struggles with some of this. But it's, I guess the point of what I'm saying is I believe that that all I can try to do is open my mind as far as possible and allow whatever it may be. And some of that is negative energy. And you were talking about the tough experiences. And I feel like I don't have those as much anymore because I, I've gone through it. Mm-hmm. Like I've, I've had so many of them that I, I've flushed a lot out of my, of my conscious brain of the things like, that I'm afraid of or the things that I don't understand. So what, what would you recommend? Like for, do you think for like, not everything is right for everyone, but as thinking humans, what do you do to, to balance, balance the thoughts that you may have in your mind and the idea that you want to build a labyrinth that you want to create something that may endure with your everyday life and the two weeks that I have to do that. How, what is the balance? Like what do what oh, the balance of sort of short term goals versus of everything, goals the balance of every fucking thing. What is someone like, cause you are a very, you're a thoughtful individual. You, you did not get to where you are and you did not, you're not going to get to where you're going because you didn't think about like you have thought it's not dumb luck. I refuse to, you know, you have thought about it and you've made the choice that you thought was best. Whether it was right or wrong is not consequential. Yeah. But that you think, like, what, moving forward as, as humans within a corona and a pandemic where people are quarantined, like, what, what do we do for our minds? Like, what do we do to balance our conscious and unconscious desires and thoughts? And what do we do? Ooh, that's a big one. <laughs> I have a logistical question. Can I take a bathroom break? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. No, no, no. No, you absolutely can. Um, go to the bathroom. I'm going to, yeah, I'll do two minutes of, of nonsense. Go ahead. Yes, go. Awesome. Go right now, Seven. Okay, so this, now this will be for you, Madison. Now, oh, yes. you have talked about your psych, oh, just to the left, right there, just to the left. You've talked about your psychedelic endeavors. From your experience, was it something that you saw as a child or when did opening your mind become something that that was like that was really important to you? Because you and all of your family have (laughs) you have you have very crafted minds Like you have minds that have. That really, um, you look for things that that I talk about all the time that are maybe unseen or not easily understood. When did it, your mind open up? What, what, like, what, what, what do you go back to? Yeah, um, I mean, before even considering psychedelics or anything like that, right? Like we were always kind of challenged um, 
with like thought things really young that kind of would give me anxiety at like that young of an age but like my dad would be like you're made of the same stuff as this table like everything is just energy oh your father was talking to you like i talk to people now yes holy shit that must have been terrifying especially with um there was times you know we've been into like all kinds of different we've experimented with all kinds of different religions too and with christian science there is like this like matter thing, like human. What is Christian science? I don't know what that is. Okay, so with Christian science, I don't know enough about it. I was like young, right? But they don't do the doctors, and they also think that like you, people can't experience pain. Like that's all just like stuff that we're doing in our brain. So like knocking on the desk. If you want anything to eat or drink or anything, I only have a few more questions for you. We've almost hit 90 minutes. Oh man. So yeah, this is, this is great. No, go ahead. Yes. No, she's talking about Christian science. Because I have to tell you, Madison's family, I have known them, and they have, um, you know, they've been wonderful supporters of Brian Moreno for quite some time. And, no, I I love them, but I have to say they are so unique and very interesting in the way they think. Like, I had no idea Madison had ever even, you know, mushroomed, but let alone done 90 days of microdosing to literally open up her brain. And she's talking about how when she was younger, she was introduced to a lot of challenging thoughts. Like her father would say things like, you're made of the same stuff as this table. Like the way I talk to a child. Very like metaphysical. And so your parents were into Christian science? So my dad was always into everything. Like we're ethnically and like from back or whatever, like Jewish. My mom is not, um, but she converted. But... It was never, like, a whole, like, official thing either. And then, you know, we would go to the Hare Krishna temples on Sundays, and we were macrobiotic and vegetarian, vegan for a long time or forever, depending on which person in the family it is. Um, But with things like that, I was so little. And, you know, when you think of, like, oh, we're all made of matter, like, this is all, like, you know, star stuff on varying levels of, like, metaphysical versus, like, hippie, whatever, you start to think, like, okay. So it really gave a lot of autonomy to your experience because it's not just like you know I didn't feel like I got the regular programming of like how you're supposed to feel and think about things and if you consider matter and everything comes together in a different way whatever you start to go like okay well then how do I want to experience something and which is kind of funny because you know you give yourself it's almost like you could skew narcissistic right if you're like everything I'm experiencing is through my own perspective how do I want to take it in which gives you the ability to have a very positive outlook. So then for getting into psychedelics was much later because I never wanted to be in a dangerous situation. So really in my adult life, when I felt like I could have a safe space and no one was going to come get me or the water, earthquakes on a trip is a horrible fear of mine. (laughs) I have to feel confident going into anything like an earth. I'm not going to have to run for my life while I'm fucked up. Mm -hmm. That's that. (laughs) Wait, so, so you, when, how old were you when you first did psychedelics? Oh, uh, 24, like older. Oh, I yeah. had tried smoking weed when I was younger. My, my mom is like a big cannabis person. Yes. Um, she like works in the industry and she's always been a good proponent on that, especially for getting off of opiate addiction. Um, but weed still to this day gives me anxiety. I've tried in every iteration. My boyfriend got like a roar or whatever. And I was like really excited. I was like, I've never smoked out of a bong. Like I'm going to try it. As an adult, literally 29, and I was laying, I threw up, (laughs) so embarrassing, 29, I threw up in my own house, and I was laying in bed, and I was like, why? I know I don't like it. Why did I do it? Like I said, some drugs (laughs) are not for some people. Yeah, Uh, it really is like that. You're not getting off the hook. (laughs) I know, yeah. I was going to bring you back if you did it. Yeah, no, no, no. Okay, so your question was wide-ranging. 
It is. Well, well, yes. How do you how do you approach life during a pandemic? Well, how do you how does one not just approach life in a pandemic? How does one what is what are some of maybe the life hacks that you've seen or that you use in order to keep your sanity, but to keep a balance with your goals and the actual world? Yeah. Um, okay. Number one life hack that I would tell everybody. Whenever you're talking to yourself, don't say you, say we. Why did we do that? Why did we think this is a good idea? What are we going to do next? It's way nicer. Uh, it's like, yeah, just the same team. I'm on the same team as the voice in my head. So when you're talking to yourself? Self-talk. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Like, Why do we do that? You why ever do, do something and you're just like, why the fuck do you do that? Yeah, and you're talking at yourself yeah. like you're scolding yourself yeah, no, almost. Why did we do that? So... In terms of life hacks, but in terms of like what what is good in life, what how do you survive? How do you make it work? Uh, that's tough because there's a need. Well, I have had a need to feel like I'm accomplishing something for most of my life, and sometimes what you're accomplishing is just being alive, and that's fine, and that's okay. And the biggest, the first lesson that I had to teach myself in this. I didn't get until my late 20s, um, was that sometimes it's okay to have a day off. And having that day off is specifically something that you have to approach with mindfulness. You can't just be like, oh, I guess I'm not going to get anything done today, but I'm going to feel shitty about it the whole time. That's not how that works. Have a day off where you're just like, you know, today is the day in which I am not going to accomplish anything, whatever that means or for whatever definition. And so for you to say like, hey, I want to spend the next 12 hours just taking care of myself and I don't know if that play you know involves playing video games or looking at porn or talking with friends whatever makes you happy whatever makes you happy or cooking or something along those lines and what I realized is you know this is back when I was working 70 80 hours a week during residency I would have days and I'm just like man I've got so much shit to do and I can't relax until everything's done but I'm going to try to and what I really figured out was just like no I'm going to take 10 hours I'm going to get nothing done I'm going to go into this intention you know, get going to this space with the intention of being nice to myself. And inevitably, after about two hours of that, I was just like, man, I feel great. I'm energized. I'm going to do the things that I need to do. And this is not a productivity hack. This is a hack for just being nice to yourself. And so the idea is just, just for me, take that time. Let yourself actually relax. And actually relaxing, you probably end up taking less time than you think it will. I have to remind myself that is absolutely a beautiful way. And so many moments came into my head right there where I'm scolding myself and there's no reason to do that to yourself. Like life is hard. Like the world will scold us enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then there's a, there's a sort of non attachment to outcomes. Like if your basic needs are getting met and that's a, that's one of the hardest parts of about this pandemic is there are a lot of people whose basic needs aren't getting met. They don't have, income they don't have security you know we don't have the ability to connect with people things along those lines those are hard and those are things that i think a lot of people especially during covid didn't realize how important that is it's like hey you know yeah i'll see my friends and i'll have a good time with my friends i think a lot of people have not you know myself included have not really reckoned with what the psychological consequences are of not seeing anybody for weeks on end mm -hmm. you know outside of like distant relationships uh you know sort of social distancing, walking outside. And I think just being honest with yourself about what you want and being okay with wanting the things that you want 
you know, you got to be your own best friend. No one else is going to do it. Like, you can have another best friend, but they're not going to know you as well as you know yourself. Easier said than done. Easier said than done. It, but that is a beautiful sentiment. But yeah, positive regard. Like, you know, positive regard for yourself and being okay. And the other thing that I would say is this is a cognitive behavioral therapy thing, but you are not your thoughts. You are not your feelings. You can have thoughts and you can have feelings. And what you choose to do with that is you know, essentially how we live our life. You say you're not your thoughts, but don't you think your thoughts kind of manifest? Like, isn't that, that's high level removing yourself. Here's, here's a better word. Don't believe everything you think. Okay. Okay. Yes. 1000%. Yes. 1000. Thousand percent. I'm going to, yes, go ahead. Do you learn CBT stuff? Like it is like more of a medical question. yeah. Yeah. Not really. Okay, so that's no. more stuff you got yourself into. Yeah, and this is this studied. is a lot of like self work and other things that I've done yeah. and various experiences that I've had that have made that that feel in different ways. But like, I don't know. In terms of like generally being nice to yourself, and one of the biggest things that I've learned about myself over the course of the last couple months and that I've been working on is just like a lot of what happens. Let's let's conceptualize of the brain as two separate things. There's sort of the process, you know, just everything that's going on behind your prefrontal cortex, your amygdala, your dopaminergic system, your visual system, all of that is just feeding information up to your prefrontal cortex and your consciousness, which I'm just going to refer to as you or your consciousness. And there's a lot of things and there are a lot of inputs there. And those inputs are really just trying to keep you safe and they're trying to keep you healthy. And so I have conceptualized of my brain as a machine to predict the future. That's the major thing that my brain does is it takes inputs from my sensorium, from what I can see, from what I know, and it tries to predict a model of what's going to happen over the course of the next two minutes, two hours, two years, something along those lines. And a lot of the information that I get up to my consciousness is in service of keeping me safe and keeping me happy. But those don't those things don't always feel good. And sometimes those come across as thoughts and sometimes those come across as emotions. But what I have to understand is that my brain is on the same team that I am. And so the times that I wake up and my brain is like, hey, nothing you do today is going to be fun and you look like shit. That is my brain trying to give me useful information with the goal of keeping me happy. You talk about that like a man, though, who trusts his instinct. And just because it looks like just because I do a thousand things at the same time, I'm still listening to every fucking word you say. I appreciate that. And just you trust your instincts. I don't trust my instincts. What says you? No, I don't. I mean, in some situations I do, like, you know, in the hospital, there's a lot of information that I have access to. I'm getting back to that question that I never answered from the very beginning. I I remember. Yeah. So um, there are a lot of things that we are good at, but they have to be repeatable and they have to have immediate feedback have you ever read you know thinking fast and slow um daniel kahneman i've heard of yes i've not it's a real good book for understanding the the pitfalls that your brain gets into i would highly recommend it at least the first half the second half gets way too much into economics and this dude's individual research but thinking fast and slow daniel kahneman talks about pitfalls in, in the way that human perception works and he essentially says that human instinct um, is useful or mental instinct is useful in situations where you have an opportunity to practice it and you get immediate feedback. So in the hospital, yeah, there are plenty of opportunities where I like, you know, I have an instinct, I choose whether or not to follow that, and then I figure out whether or not I'm right in a very short time frame, you know, hours, something like that. Those are the situations with which I trust my instincts. The instincts in which I walk in to a party or something like that, and my instinct is, yo, everyone here is going to think you're a fucking weirdo. Don't bother trying to make friends. That's not an instinct I pay attention to. That's but but you're using a specific example, I think, based on social anxiety, sure. not 
not necessarily instincts because I think when the heat is on, you don't necessarily crack. You I may you may think you're a weirdo, mm -hmm. but you're not cracking under the pressure. No, be the calmest person in the room. Yeah, see, now that's that, that getting to the root of things. But I don't think that's an instinct per se. Like, wh what do you mean by instinct in this well, case? What what counts as an instinct except well, that for like that's a, that's yeah. a that's a great question because I don't know as humans, I don't know what our instinct other is to other than like stay alive, yeah. like uh, be fed, be <laughs> sheltered. Like I don't know what yeah. and that's like I. I see instincts in my animal that I'm like, wow, I can't like that's thousands of years of evolution that's maybe just programmed into your genetics and mm -hmm. and but there's also there's something back to the point of, of of what our initial point is. We are just the vessels for our consciousness and your consciousness mm -hmm. has an ability to to make decisions under pressure or and you may second guess yourself in social situations, but those may be societal things that have skewed your value system. You're doing a lot of arbitrary distinctions here, man. Uh, yeah, but I do. <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, that's my whole life. But you understand, yeah. I got on stage and I look before comedy. I was the West Coast public relations manager of the Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. I hated my life. I hated my job, but I knew words my gift. I got on stage and I immediately had instantaneous feedback on my words. Mm -hmm. I could say something and I could... And God, the energy, but crowd, but yeah. I tell you, the first eight years was failure. Fa the seven years, failure, failure, failure. Yeah, don't oversell yourself. Now, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and and so you know, yeah, I I am, I, I do make certain broad strokes in some of the dots I'm trying to connect, but I think in order to progress some of the thought that I do, I have to do that. I have to, and if and if I'm and if you want to split hairs on some of the details, I'm fine with going back to do that. And so, yes, I, you know, I am making determinations on you, but I know one of my gifts and one of my curses is knowing people mm -hmm. and and knowing energy and seeing how individuals react under certain pressures that I naturally apply. And it's for no other reason that that's what I do. You know, whether it be through my comedy, whether it be yeah, through you have, a, you have a very direct style, and I can understand how some people would shrink away from that. Sure, and, and that's and 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 it's not necessarily even shrink away. It's I bring out things that maybe they didn't necessarily want to feel as Silas Sullivan does, I was say, or, I was like, as the mushrooms. <laughs> I'm a natural psychedelic, so. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it, it, but it, look, I want to get to one last, this is my one last thing that I really do want to talk to you because I have so many burner friends. Mm -hmm. I do not do well in circumstances with a lot of dust and no bathrooms. Sure. Showers, things like that. Yeah. No, it's just not my thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you see the best of times? Is it ever going to get back to the way it was? At Burning Man? I have literally no idea. What? I mean, any do you, festivals. Yeah, but any yeah. festivals. Fest festivals in general. I think if... We end up with a vaccine that really does have 90% efficacy that we can get back to a relatively normal looking way of living life. If we're talking about a vaccine that has a 60% efficacy, I don't see that happening. That's a big, that. This is not the last pandemic of our lives. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. Is that, yeah, so that uh, I get wanted to get to. Like, we saw, and I believe we saw a genuine peak. Like, you saw some things at Burning Man that the experiences and the people. and the, I, th I, I believe you probably did. I don't no, know. No, 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 I did. You're just making me sad. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's what it was. Okay. Because, no, because yeah. that's – but, it, yes, it is sad. But also, I think it's extremely 
I think it's extremely wonderful because you got to experience it and you got to see it. And that's why I hope concerts and life can come back because I'm used to packed rooms with comedy. That's why I call myself an ex-comedian now. Because mm-hmm. what the fuck is it if I'm remember 20 people in someone's garage driveway? I'm not, it's not the same. Yeah. I want people literally falling out of chairs and like eating chicken wings off other people's plates. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, and I just wonder, as a doctor in your position, what is a timeline? What is the timeline where you could actually see yourself going back to Burning Man? Um... It's difficult because I'm very emotionally invested in this. I I do not think that Burning Man 2021 is out of the question. Wow. I don't think it's out of the question. I think, I don't know what it's going to look like. I wouldn't be surprised if it actually happened. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a very difficult decision, and it might be down to the wire. So in real terms, yeah. you think in by 23, by 2023, you think... Good to back back to like because I don't when, know when do I see life getting back to quote unquote normal? Well, not there. I don't think normal's ever no, coming. Normal's no, normal's never coming. No, back. well, when everything do, is a new normal, so I hate that term. Sure. When do I see us being able to go out in public in groups and zero consideration of someone coughing? Because remember those days when you could be in a theater and someone cough and you're just like they're coughing. Yeah. Now, if you heard someone cough. I think I know way too much about respiratory diseases. Yeah, oh, well, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, should, should we have always? Should we have always been more co- like if we oh, yeah. had been more concerned and careful? Argentina fucking destroyed its flu pandemic this year because everybody was wearing masks. If we had known that that was possible, we're really, about tens of billions of dollars in economic damage every year from the flu that we could have prevented just by always. Just yeah, always. That's always been the case. So when do I think that this is going to get down to the same level of consideration as regular flu and something else that we can, like, pretend to care about? I would give it another year and a half. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so your understanding of respiratory disease, like, you feel like th- this is something we have not only should have been aware of, there ha- there should have been more people. You know, Anthony Fauci took a lot of shit for saying a year ago, like, it's going to be a big pandemic sometime soon. And people looked at that and like, oh, clearly this dude's responsible. No, this dude's mm-hmm. smart. This dude's seen the writing on the wall. I learned in med school, you know, which I went to, what, 14 to 10 years ago, that we are on the, we've been on the brink of another giant pandemic Fuck. for at least 20 years. People have known this is happening. You can't have the population density that we have and the sort of cosmopolitan world hopping combined with the exposure to a bunch ton of different types of animals in different ways. Like we're going to get multiple rounds of further zoonotic transmission, zoonotic wow. being from animals. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, last yesterday we did an article in the news episode that, uh, the WHO and China, there's still the, uh, the news episode. Yes. Uh, but, um, the, uh, the WHO and China, they're still trying to figure out like the, yeah. Okay. The, the, the that, the, they're still trying to figure out the the cause, where it really came from, the the origin. Do you think it's ever going to be figured out? It, I mean, is it too? Are we too far from root? I don't understand the science behind that. Is it not my area of expertise? However, um, I'm pretty sure we have genome sequences from some of the first patients. Oh, so that, that so we do have a snapshot of what was going on back. And then. in your thoughts, this is this was definitely from an animal and not man-made. Do you I, think? You know, the technology is not there to make a man-made virus that's untraceable in the way that this. 
viruses. Uh, when you when you insert DNA or RNA into a virus, you do it with a very specific set of primers, a very specific set of molecules, and you can kind of look at it and say, like, yeah, this is where that sequence was because that sequence is part of the zipping, part of the CRISPR process, or whatever wow. technology you're going to use. Wow, 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 wow. Can we medic like, can we just not hang out with, like, weird animals and then... Not get worse pandemics. So there are a lot of people who care more about this than I do. Not care more, but like have spent a lot more of their research careers on this than I do, um, who have talked about different mitigation things. I think the wet markets really are a big concern because there's a lot of live animals. It's a bad idea, right? It's a recipe for zoonotic transmission. I think that it is difficult to sort of wind those down, make those not happen because they're not really legal or state sanctioned in the first place it would require a lot of policing to make that happen and it's culturally accepted exactly but could we make it like if more people knew not to because i i just don't know enough like were people going as tourists or like how is it no this is this is a local outbreak in wuhan so then it went from wuhan and then people just literally visiting there and then leaving out so it it's the people who really spread it weren't the ones who were at the market specifically. Probably not. That okay. I don't know quite as much about. But, you know, there was, you know, outbreak locally. And then people move. Like, if yeah, if you set into a situation where you're just like, hey, you're not allowed to leave your hometown ever, we wouldn't have pandemics. But yeah. Yeah, life yeah. would look fundamentally right. different. Interesting. Thank you so much. Oh, th- this whole uh, life will look fundamentally different after this episode. <laughs> I, I No, Stefan, you have been an absolute delight. I, is there anything... Is there anything you like we didn't touch on? I, you besides asked me at the very beginning what I believe in that's weird. Well, sure, that's a yes, that's another way to well, that's not or that's e- that's out easily there. understood easily or not understood. or not exactly accepted by the scientific community. Oh, you know? yeah. Okay, so I'm going to give an answer to that that may or may not be satisfying or touching on what you want, but I hope to have you back, so I'll satisfy. Ooh, okay. I'll, I'll okay. satisfy. You'll get there eventually. Good. I have more <laughs> questions, too. So yes, yes. yes. All right. Uh, well, I would love to be back at some point. So I think that humans do a lot of understanding of our environments in ways that we do not have access to consciously. So when somebody says, like, oh, I just picked up on the vibe of this situation, or I didn't like the energy this person was giving me, or like these various things where you're like, you know, people who are psychics, people who, you know, uh, claim to have ESP, things along those lines. I think a decent amount of that is still going through the same sensory channels that we have. But I think we're paying attention to things and connecting with people on a regular basis in ways that we aren't aware of. So the process of meeting somebody and just being like, do I trust this person? How does this person feel? things like that. I think there's a lot that's going on behind the scenes inside our brains that we don't have access to. And a lot of that feels like psychic energy. A lot of it feels like being an empath. And a lot of the people who like are empaths who are sort of tapped into that side of things are just really good at paying attention to these clues. And I think that sometimes information can be transmitted in that way that we don't think can be transmitted in that way. This is how I've always explained it in my non-scientific way because not only not only have I preached that for a long time, but this is some people run fast, some people jump high. It would be absolutely ridiculous to think that others cannot per- sense 
sense things that you cannot, whether it be a certain energy, whether it be a cross that you're bearing um, subconsciously, whatever it may be, that is a talent like anything else. And that's exactly what I would call anyone in that field, you know, because there are people who can sense things in ways that others cannot. And it's, it would be a giant disservice to our brain to, I think, to eliminate. And that's a very scientific way to put it. I just think it gets put into the ballpark of things with such negative connotation, mm -hmm. like psychics or whatever you may, the mentalist, whatever people, whatever coin they coin themselves, that, that it comes in a ballpark of things that are very nefarious. Yes. And that's the problem. And I think there's a tradition of hucksterism around that as well. Sure, really sure, of course, yeah. of course. Because anything that um, cannot be explained by science pretty much is magic until it can be explained, right? Yeah. I mean, that, I mean that's, I mean, that, like I say, I may be a, giving a foolheartedly description, but, you know, this is, this is, I'm a man of the people. I think I speak <laughs> there we go. to I the, can be a man of science. You can yes, be a man of the yes, I try to bridge yeah. the gap. <laughs> what do you have for oh. a man of science? It, we can save it for the next episode. I was just no, wondering. No, please ask. It's, we're going, since we're circling back, you had said something about the dopamine versus the serotonin when it comes to habit forming. Mm -hmm. um, is that because dopamine is harder to make or serotonin is easier to make? No, I think it's, it's literally, t again, to the best understanding, and it's been a little while since I studied this, but to my best understanding, like dopamine is the pathway through which we mediate wanting something. Okay, so then the drugs that are acting on dopamine receptors, you want because that's the want. Yes, and drug. the definition that I would give for addiction is wanting something that you don't like anymore. Oh, and that's why you say with with people that I would call um, that get addicted to methamphetamine or cocaine or whatever, yeah. they're just doing it because they cannot control that. And I feel like that is the difference between just a recreational user and an addict. But what is that? It's a pattern of behavior. Pat behavior like that's a, no, that's a great way to put it because that's what I was kind of touching on before when people are like, "How do I break these patterns?" And I'm like the overstimulation of the brain through mushrooms sometimes can get, get you back to zero at least. Yeah, or give you a different way of connecting with things or just sort of insight into that process. So, oh, God, we really, we completed, oh, God. I, Stefan, you have, and trust me, my expectations were high, and normally they are very <laughs> low, Stefan. I have to tell you, no, 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 I have the lowest expectation levels for people <laughs> in my life, and you... My God, I, oh, this has been an episode of the mind and body episode. Dr. Stefan Richter, Madison Lee, you, um, anything you would ever like to give, I can put it in the bio. You make sure to give me your email address. This is going to go up Monday. I'm going to give the people, uh, the weekend. And if you ever want to come back, if there's ever anything you want to promote or talk about specifically something in the news. I am here for you. I genuinely, I, I am impressed with you exponentially. And Madison here is, she is wonderful. And I can't say enough about you. Thank you for riding along. I, Thank you for <laughs> having me. I'm always happy to be here. I'm going to re-listen to the show. I'm sure I'm going to get questions from my mother and my aunt and <laughs> whatever it may be, Stefan, you come back because you have made a friend here and I, I cannot say it enough. Thank you. I really appreciate it. No, you. Thank you for helping people all the time, too. Oh. Yes, yeah. you, you guys are absolutely wonderful. This has been the Brian Moreno Show. Thank you all Thank so you much. Brian.